As we are turning the page, essentially, from Galatians chapter 2 to Galatians chapter 3, there's a sense in which that Paul is finally arriving to his primary point. It's almost as if Paul has been on a diversion of sorts after chapter 1 verse 6 as he's been explaining and establishing not only his authority but also what the gospel truly is. So much to the point where now he's finally getting back to what instigated this letter in the first place. If you you know, he lays out the problem at hand in verse 6 of chapter 1 where he says, I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And if you remember, uh, from that point on, he tells his story. He talks about what the gospel truly is, how he received it by God himself. And then when it was called into question by the Judaizers, those that he calls of the circumcision party, he stood up to them. And even more so, he stood up to Peter, to his face, in order to defend what? The truth of the gospel. And now we find ourselves at verse 1 of chapter 3. And then you can imagine Paul being like, oh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, you guys are really, really foolish for thinking that there's a different gospel. (laughs) That's what I wanted to tell you. You see, the damage had been sufficiently done, so to speak, thanks to the Judaizers and their uh, so-called gospel of Jesus plus. Church folk and... Galatia had been deceived, and yes, they had been confused, and yes, they had even been deluded into believing that, that, that Jesus' cross wasn't enough. It wasn't quite sufficient to deliver them from sins because they had to do an, a number of other things on top of just believing in what Jesus did. But of course, as we've demonstrated, as Paul has clearly declared, that is more than a ludicrous notion. To believe that Jesus' cross isn't enough. But now he's going to pivot. Pivot from just giving them history and just talking to them about his authority and about the gospel, so to speak, to now addressing the Galatians directly, unloading on them, so to speak, in a series of rhetorical questions that indeed expose their foolishness. Again, verse 1, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul, of course, was never one to mince words. He was never a guy who was going to beat around the bush, so to speak. He was going to get straight to the point. He was going to be direct and firm and clear. And that's what he is here. Twice, he calls these Galatians foolish. Twice, he calls them this word that means essentially thoughtless or senseless. Or, if you want to put it into modern vernacular, it essentially could be translated as stupid. You stupid Galatians, who has put a spell on you? Why are you believing in this stupidity? That's essentially what he's saying to them, how he's addressing them. What's gotten into you? What have you been smoking? What have you been drinking? Who have you been listening to? 
This is Paul. You can sense his agitation as he's writing these words to these beloved churches and congregations that he just spent time with. And now he's saying, how have you moved on so quickly to something else? Paul has zero patience for the gospel of Christ crucified to be called into question. And especially when those who are calling into question are the exact ones who should have known better. Even though these churches in Galatia were mainly Gentile congregations, uh, Paul, of course, as we've established, has recently uh, spent time giving them the gospel. This uh, is what happened during that very first missionary journey. Go back to Acts chapter 13 and 14. Read what Paul and Barnabas did, and not only just what they did, but what they preached. And all of that, think about all of those same churches are the exact ones that he is now addressing with this very letter. He wants them to remember, Paul does, how the gospel was first brought to their doorstep. Notice his, his choice words, so to speak, in verse number one. Notice where he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now think about what he's saying there for a moment. Is he referring to the actual crucifixion event? No, of course not. This event didn't happen in this region, and nor do we believe that anyone, any of these Gentiles from this region would have been in Jerusalem or just outside of Jerusalem 20 years before this when Jesus was believed to have been crucified. So what is he saying? How could Jesus be publicly portrayed as crucified before their eyes if they were not there for the actual crucifixion? Well, of course, he's talking about his preaching. He's talking about the way in which this gospel of Christ crucified is delivered to these churches in the first place. And he's saying that I put Jesus uh, on public display for you. And that public display was a display of his sacrificial death, which is again for you. That's what Paul's saying. Think about what he says in the book of 1 Corinthians. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a book that was written sometime after this. Remember where he says, Paul does, that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. We are made to see even here that this is not some, that was not some new conclusion. That was not some new thing that Paul had just come up with. This is his mantra. This is his motto. This is his calling card. This is his message. Christ crucified has always been his message. He's not the one that ever moved off of that point. It was the people around him oftentimes who diverged into something else. But what's more, what I love about this very first verse in Galatians 3 is just the fact that we are given a glimpse of the way in which this message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners was given, was conveyed and communicated to sinners. Notice again where he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So again, to a congregation that wasn't there for the original event of Christ's crucifixion, Paul was so determined, and yes, I could even say so filled with the Holy Spirit that he preached in such a way that brought that awful scene into the present. 
He was preaching in such a way that wasn't just talking about an historical event back there. He's saying that Jesus Christ on the cross is for you in this moment, so to speak. And I think this is... This ought to be true every time the church gathers. Whenever this word of God is opened. Whenever we open the Bible that we have in front of us. The good news concerning Jesus' triumph over sin and death ought to be proclaimed in the present tense. It's a right now reality what Jesus did on the cross. It's not just something that happened back then. It's something that is true even for you in this moment in 2023. That's the point. The gospel is, not, is only rightly delivered when all of its horrors, when all of its atrocities, when all of its ghastly details are not only just described in an historical sense, but they are brought before sinners' eyes in a very vivid sense, in the living present. And he says essentially, that's what I did. That's what we were doing. Me and Barnabas and everyone who was with us, we were publicly portraying, we were placarding the message of Christ to you. And then he puts them in remembrance of that precisely because he knows he's going to get into some stinging questions. Again, after he reminds them of that, well, notice what he asks. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? After the Galatians believed... After these congregations were introduced to the gospel and they received the gospel and they believed in it and they repented of their sins and now they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit by faith. He asked them. Paul does. After all of that happened, after that message of Christ crucified was given to you, how are all of the blessings of this gospel, how were they given to you? By what means? Did the Holy Spirit, did he come to dwell on you because of something you did? Because of your ability to keep the law? No, of course not. No one in their right minds would say that. And therefore, he makes that connection. Don't you think, again, you could, ask, you could hear Paul asking this in verse 3. Don't you think it's more than a little foolish that having begun by the Spirit, that you're now somehow being perfected and completed and finished by the flesh, by what you do? Don't you think it's more than a little silly that what was began and started and inaugurated and initiated by God through God's spirit, through the preaching of God's word. Don't you think it's more than a little silly that you think that that is now being brought to perfection by you? That's, that's nonsense, Paul says. That's ludicrous. It is indeed foolish to believe such things, but such is the deception of the Judaizers with their doctrine and preaching that yes, you don't just have to believe, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Make sure you're being circumcised, make sure you're keeping the law, make sure you're eating kosher, make sure you're doing all of the things in synagogue appropriately. And Paul is saying, no, it's by faith alone. And more to the point, I would say that this deception is still wreaking havoc on the church, even to this day. You see, this dichotomy that Paul is going to set up, this this comparison, this contrast between faith and works, that comparison, that contrast remains one of the most 
polarizing points of friction within the church even today. And indeed, I think you, if you were to do the research, if you were to look at all of the past decades and centuries of church history, nearly every single scandal, nearly every single schism and division within the, within the church has always sort of began over a disagreement over this point. How much do our works matter? How, how is the scale balanced between faith and works? How, how are we supposed to think about this? And I know I, I should probably tread carefully because I know that this topic has ripped apart countless churches in ages past. But I would, need, I would indeed say that how you answer that question will not only reveal how you understand the gospel, but it will even more so reveal what you think about the Christian life as a whole. Because you will either be exposed as a Judaizer, or you will be exposed as a beggar. You'll be exposed as a person of works, or a person of faith. You see, that's what the Judaizers are. They were, they were people of works. They were adamant. That the deciding factor in any sinner's life on whether or not they were justified is it was dependent upon what they were doing. Again, you go back to that disagreement between Peter and Paul. It's about keeping the law, making sure they were keeping everything kosher, making sure everything was fitting to the, the check boxes of the law to a T. And again, you can go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Remember what they were saying? What was their statement? Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. That was their message. That was their gospel. The gateway to life with God, according to that understanding of the truth of God, was then contingent. It was dependent upon what they do. What sinners do is the deciding factor. It was works, it was doing, it was effort and energy on the part of sinners. That was the deciding factor in whether or not they were justified before the eyes of Almighty God. And here, this is where Paul flatly disagreed. He refused to budge from the position that the works of sinners are merely the byproduct of, and we can say they flow out of, the justified life. You see, for Paul, sinners are beggars. They have nothing to offer God Almighty. They're beggars. They can only receive And when they receive the gospel of Christ crucified for them, you can think of it like they are like an empty cup that's put under a running faucet. They're not just filled to the brim, they are overflowing. And that's how we should understand the works and obedience in our life of faith. They, the things that we do, our works, our obedience for God, are what? They are an overflowing response to what we have been given in and through Christ. They're not the reason for our right standing with God. They're not the cause for what God is doing in us through his spirit. What does Paul say? And I'm getting ahead in in chapter 5. What does he call them? They are the fruit of the spirit and his work in us. Your goodness, your love, your patience, your godliness, your own faithfulness. 
All of that is what is the byproduct of a work that's being done in you, not by you. It's the work of the Spirit in you. Works, again, obedience always follows on the heels of the gift of God's righteousness received by faith. Which is dispensed to us through God's word and by God's spirit. You have to understand then that now you can make, we can understand this conflict between the Judaizers and Paul. Because the Judaizers essentially, where they were confusing categories. They were putting the cart before the horse, if I can use that phrase. They were mixing up the fruit of the faith with the root of the faith. The root always comes first. If the fruit has no root, then everything is out of whack. And the root of faith is always what? The root of faith is always an objective declaration of what's been done. It is an unmistakable message of what has been accomplished for you. Your justification, again, is certain in Jesus. Think about your own life of faith. Your own time of being a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for one year or 11 years or 51 years. How did you first come to know God? Was it through an an abundance of things that you were doing and that you just uh, one day were like, yeah, I know God now. Did you work your way into a right standing before the God of the universe? Is your performance for him the thing that led to your justification before him? I hope and pray that your answer is no to every single one of those questions. Because indeed it's not. The point is that you are just as much a person of faith before you are justified as after you're justified. Your whole life is a life of faith. Your whole entire existence. And indeed, this is when we get to Paul's kill shot, if you will. This is where we get to Paul's eventual haymaker that brings the Judaizers down. They cannot argue with what he's about to say next. Notice verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? We've pointed this out before. But you... I'll point it out again. Whenever a New Testament writer mentions the Old Testament character of Abraham, you better pay attention. You better buckle up. Because he is establishing and trying to communicate something that is incredibly important and significant. And indeed, you can look at a number of different instances where this occurs. Peter does it. James does it. The writer of Hebrews does it. Jesus does it. They all allude to Abraham to make a specific point about New Testament doctrine. And here, by invoking Father Abraham, Paul is is doing his best to make sure everyone is paying attention. Everyone is looking up and paying attention to this letter being read to them. And as he references, that Abraham, the, the patriarch of Israel, the patriarch's patriarch, if you will... He was justified. He was made right before God in the same way that every single sinner after him was made right before God. How? By believing in God's word of promise. That is, by faith. 
You'll notice he quotes Genesis chapter 15. Go with me over there really quickly. Genesis chapter 15, this all-important chapter in the Old Testament, which I think proves more than any other, any other chapter that this justification by faith is something that's always been in the cards, so to speak. It's always been there from the very beginning. Notice chapter 15, and this is where the Lord is repeating his covenant to Father Abraham. He has given him his promise that all of Abraham's offspring will be, uh, well, they will outnumber the sands on the seashore, they'll outnumber the stars in heaven. And then there was a, a time where God is, is silent to him. Then he repeats this promise in chapter 15. Notice this verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. If you remember, he was given this promise that even in his old age, he was going to have an heir. And that heir, through him, would come the blessing of all the nations. And as time went on, years passed, decades passed, what happens? His wife is not getting any younger, and she's not getting more pregnant. <laughs> There's a problem. There's an issue here. If you want me to have children, you got to figure something out. Is, is it just this, this house aide? Is it this guy that's living in my house, Eleazar? Is he to be my heir? God says no. It's going to come through you, Abraham. Through you and Sarah. Notice, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and God, he counted it to him as righteousness. There it is. This covenantal promise that is given to Abraham by the Lord Jesus, by God himself. He gives him this promise that through you, the blessing of all the nations will come. And Abraham believed him. And he was counted. That is, he was reckoned. That is the word imputed. It was given to him on the credit as credit of righteousness. Again, this is perhaps the most important Old Testament text to show that our justification is not by works. It's by faith. Because here, Abraham is not just believing in what God is saying. Paul is going to say that this very promise of God, this equates to the gospel itself. If you go with me, go to Galatians chapter 3. Did you notice that in verse number 8? Galatians 3.8, Paul says this, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. 
You see, understand here that the, the culmination of the blessing that is given to Abraham is who? It's Jesus. So essentially, what is happening here is that this word of promise that's being given to Abraham is, again, another instance of the gospel being preached to an Old Testament figure. So you have an Old Testament figure by the name of Abraham. He's being given the gospel, God's word of promise, something that he's going to do unilaterally for Abraham, and he believes it and it's counted to him as righteousness. He is justified on the spot. And most importantly, the nail in the coffin, if you will, for the argument of the Judaizers is this is two or three, I, I, I think it's in chapter 18, this is a couple chapters before the institute of circumcision was ever even instituted. See, those who Paul calls the circumcision party, they were not only adding extra qualifications and extra prerequisites to what the gospel is, they they were also ignoring the clear understanding and unfolding and teaching of the scriptures itself. You've missed the point if you think that this thing called circumcision is so important in terms of how we are counted righteous before God. Why wasn't it there when Abraham was believing in the promise? It's because it always flows out of a justified life. It doesn't precipitate it. It doesn't act as a precursor to it. Nor is it something that the justified life is contingent on. It's the overflowing response. Our works flow out of being justified for free by faith in Jesus. And then Paul doubles down on that. Back in Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 10. They've already missed the mark in terms of how they're supposed to read the Bible. They've missed what God was revealing through Abraham. But now he's going to double down and eviscerate, totally destroy their understanding of Scripture by using Scripture to even prove his point further. Notice verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, again, he's quoting scripture here too, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Wow. Here, Paul is using the scripture in such an uncategorical and unmistakable way to establish that it is always by faith that the people of God live. It is always by faith that sinners are justified, not what they do. As he says, anyone relying, anyone trusting in on their works of the law uh, for their justification. Again, what does he say? They're under a curse. Why? It's not just because that's what the Bible says. It's because of what the Bible means. As it says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. 
Where's the curse coming from? It's coming from the fact that the law doesn't just demand a partial or good enough or you, you better try at least a little bit. The law has no grade scales. It's a pass or fail. And there's no allowances. There's no leniency. There's no exceptions. The law says you better do this or else. The law and living by the law Living according to, I can just do this if I just do enough things. Abiding by that rule means you have to do all the things. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 27, by the way, in that verse. And this is how the law works. This is the way it works when you're relying on your own works, when you're relying on your own doings, when you're relying on your own abilities, when you're relying on your own gumption to get you into right standing with God. The law says there's no wriggle, wiggle room there. You got to be perfect. And if you're perfect, if you do it, okay. But if you don't, if you fail in one little degree, too bad, you're cursed. That's how the law works. There's no faith in the law. There's only activity. There's only doing. There's only energy and ability and effort. So what's the hope then? The only option, the only recourse, the only hope for those under such cursed conditions is for what? The curse to be broken and lifted and poured out. And this is when Paul gets to that wonderful verse in verse 13 where he says, This is precisely what the gospel is all about. It's the good news that Jesus has what? Rescued us from the curse by himself becoming a curse for us. Stop and just think and pause in what he has just said. Because again, if that statement doesn't shock you, you should read it till it does. There's no hope. You are without. You are absolutely hopeless. In the, in the most hopeless of hopeless states. Apart from that curse of the law. The curse that is owed because of your sin being lifted and resolved. And this is precisely what happened when Christ was crucified on that place called Calvary. Where instead of the curse being poured out on the heads of sinners and lawbreakers as it rightly should have. It was poured out on God's own son. He and his head bore the curse. This is the testimony of the gospel. Whenever we are placarding Jesus, as he said back in verse number one, whenever we are publicly portraying Christ crucified, this is the message. This is the testimony. That the curse has been lifted. Why? Because he became the curse for cursed individuals like you and like me. You silly Galatians, don't you get it? Don't you see what your Jesus, what this Jesus of Nazareth has done for you? You and I, the cursed ones, have been set free from the curse because God's own son literally became the cursed one. That should shock you to the core of who you are. 
It's as he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin became sin. Here, the one who didn't need to put himself under the curse. Yes, he did anyways and became the curse to deliver us out of it. How mind-blowing. This is truly good news. The weight of all over the world's sin and wrongdoing, it was put on him. The sinless one became sin for you and me. The perfectly holy son of God, the the perfectly righteous son of the holy and living God, he, as it says in Isaiah, was numbered among the transgressors. Why? In order to make intercession for the transgressors. This is the gospel, my friends. This is what Jesus himself has accomplished for you and your sorry, sinning life. Mine included. And accordingly, that's where he gets to in verse number 3. Now it is evident, or excuse me, verse number 11 of chapter 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's all by faith, my friends. And out of that faith, as it's being grown and developed, and that faith is being worked in us by God's Spirit, by God's Word, what happens? Works flow from us. My friends, we are beggars. We ought not be Judaizers thinking that we can win God's favor by something that we are doing. We are beggars. We live by faith alone. All the way through our lives. This makes me think of the last moments of Martin Luther's life. When he was on his deathbed, a friend asked that great reformer, Martin Luther, do you want to stand, uh, die standing firm on Christ? And you know what Luther said? Yes. We are beggars. This is true. With his last breath, he understood who he was and who Christ was for him. He was nothing but a beggar, an empty cup that God had to fill, that God's spirit and word had to fill. He had nothing to offer. And you see, my friends, the good news of free justification because of what Christ Jesus has done, because he became the curse for you and for me, this is not just an entry point into the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Sometimes I think we can get confused on that point, just like the Galatians, where we can treat this awesome message of Christ crucified, and we can amen it, and we can say, preach it, preacher, and we can agree with anyone who's saying such things, and what we treat it often as if it's nothing more than just a ticket into the faith, rather than being what we're supposed to feed on throughout our faith. Now that Jesus has got me in, I guess i got to do my part, right? i got to stay in i got to be doing enough things to stay in. We live sometimes as if the burden is on us. To which I would ask the same question that Paul asks. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me ask you this morning. Do you think that your Bible reading is what's keeping you in the faith? What happens if that falls off? 
What happens once you get to Leviticus and you get kind of a little bit bored? You can admit it. And you can't keep going. And it falls off. What happens then? If you're staying in because you're reading the Bible so faithfully, then once you get to that point where you just can't anymore, what happens then? What happens when you miss a week or two or a month or three? (laughs) Do you think that the amount of time that you spend praying or the number of ministries that you're volunteering for or the amount of money that you're giving in the offering plate is that's what's keeping you in? And look, this morning, I'm not telling you to not read your Bible. (laughs) I haven't said that at all. And I'm not telling you not to get involved. I'm not telling you not to put money in the offering plate. And I'm not telling you to, 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 to not pray. But what I'm telling you is that none of those things are what make God love you. None of those things are what make God give you favor and blessings and continue to do things through your life. God has loved you eternally when Jesus had his hands pierced on a cross. That is God's eternal I love you. And the more you understand that, the more I think you will want to read and pray. And do all you can for the Lord Jesus. Why? Not to make him love you, but because he has loved you so infinitely. Peter says the same thing. If you think it's all about your energies and your efforts, what, would, what does he say? First Peter 1, he would tell you that your ransom, your redemption, did not come about through things such as silver or gold. And I would even hasten to add, it didn't come about through such things as the sweat of your own brow or the gritting of your own teeth through your own effort. What does Peter say? First Peter 1.19, you were ransomed by what? The precious blood of Christ. Which brings us back to what we started this whole thing talking about. It is Christ crucified. That's the message. When Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. It's not because he was just a boring preacher and he didn't have anything else to preach to them. It's not because he was not uh, unimaginative or uncreative and he couldn't think of any other message to preach. He decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's where everything else flows out of. The message of the gospel is eternally deep. It's a bottomless well from which every dry and thirsty sinner is called to drink from. And drink from constantly and constantly to uh, imbibe on. That's what this message is. That's where everything else flows out of. It flows out of what he has done. It's the message of Christ crucified. That's what the church has to offer. And indeed, it's Christ crucified. That's what got you in. And it's Christ crucified. That's what keeps you in. As the song says, grace has brought me safe thus far. And what, how does it end? And grace will lead me home. Salvation by grace through faith. That is our resting place. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And that's what the gospel tells us. And invites us. And invites us to see that 
The more we drink from that bottomless well of what Jesus has done, the more we'll be moved to live lives of faith and obedience. Not because of something, but not, not to win something, but because it has already been done for us. See, again, to put a bow on this, so to speak, our works are the things that we do for God. They're not what make us justified. Nor are they what keep us justified. Rather, they are what show that we are justified already. They are, we could say, the ripple effects of the dead being raised to life. Remember when we talked about that last week? Where justification is not just a a legal declaration, declaration. It is a resurrection of what? New life. New life being lived according to what your Savior has done. This is what Paul is championing beyond anything else. The balance of faith and works, it's always on faith. All the way. It's always on faith. From now till eternity when faith will become no more. Why? Because faith will become sight. Won't that be a blessed day? But from now until that day, we live by faith. We live trusting in the promise. Trusting in the, in the amazing declaration of what has been done. Christ became the curse for you who are cursed That is what we trust in. That is what we believe. So my friends, as you approach eternity, are you living according to the law? Are you living by faith? Are you trusting in your work and and clinging to the things that you do and the things that you have to accomplish? Or is your hand, is your cup being filled By what God and Christ has done. My friends, there's only one way to new life. And that is the way of faith. Let us pray.